What you are listening to is just one part of a series created for the review of AP European history. If you're a student reviewing for your class or the AP exam, I suggest that you take notes. Perhaps you're a history buff and enjoy the subject matter. Either way, welcome and enjoy. a look at some of the questions we'll be answering today. Number one, how did humanism affect culture and the arts in 14th and 15th century Italy? Number two, what did the term Renaissance mean in the context of 15th and 16th century Italy? What criticisms have been leveled against it? Number three, how would you define Renaissance humanism and in what ways was the Renaissance a break with the Middle Ages? And in what ways did it owe its existence to medieval civilization? Number four, who were some of the famous literary and artistic figures of the Italian Renaissance? What do they have in common that might be described as the, quote, spirit of the Renaissance, end quote? Number five, how did the Northern Renaissance affect culture in Germany, England, France, and Spain? And finally, number six, how did the Renaissance in the North differ from the Italian Renaissance? In what ways was Erasmus the embodiment of the Northern Renaissance? To better understand the Renaissance, we have to take a look back, back to the concluding years of the Middle Ages, because here we find the bridge that connects the old to the new, antiquity to modern times. First, medieval scholars believed in scholasticism, a medieval school of philosophy that used a critical method of philosophical analysis based upon Latin Christian theistic beliefs, and this dominated teaching in medieval universities. Scholastics used ancient Greek and Roman texts to give meaning to Christian teachings. Also, the late Middle Ages, Europe suffered from the wrath of the Black Death, which cost Europe anywhere between one quarter to one third of its population. During this plague, the nations of France and England fought out the Hundred Years' War. This war would help establish national feeling in both countries and would also help lead to the establishment of the modern French monarchy. The late Middle Ages also witnessed the increased secular power of European kings that directly challenged and successfully suppressed the power of the Pope and the power of the Church. It was upon these points that the Renaissance was born. Looking at those five contextual points, we have to ask the question, what shifted in Europe? What changed? And much did between the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of this new period, the Renaissance. First, the populations that were decimated by the Black Death eventually began to rise again, and individuals that had survived the plague now viewed life as a gift worth living. The suppression and demise of the power of the Pope and Church eventually led to the appointment of secular individuals into government positions. These new elites sought to demonstrate their own talents and assert individualism. And perhaps most importantly, a new group of scholars known as humanists 
no longer research the classic Greek and Roman texts to give meaning to Christian life and learning. These new scholars restored ancient works into civilization because they believed that Greek and Roman authors provided their own value outside of Christian life, and that these ancient orators and philosophers could teach people of the Renaissance period about the art of living. What did the term Renaissance mean in the context of 15th and 16th century Italy? Well, let's take a look at the term itself, Renaissance. The Renaissance is a transitional movement in Europe between medieval and modern times, beginning in 14th century Italy and lasting into the 17th century. And it's marked by a humanistic revival of classical influence expressed in the flowering of arts and literature and by the beginnings of modern science. The term itself, Renaissance, is French and translates to rebirth or to be reborn. And it comes from the Latin word nasci, to be born. To better understand the Renaissance, we have to move past a definition. We have to move past a term that can simply be translated because the Renaissance was so much more. It was a shift. It was a movement. And that movement incorporates many parts, which include intellectual, cultural, political, scientific, and artistic. So let's take a moment to go through each one of these. As far as the intellectual basis of the Renaissance is concerned, that owes its form to humanism. And humanism was derived from the Roman concept of humanitas, but it also has its basis in the rediscovery of classical Greek philosophy. And this new way of thinking, humanitas, the humanities, became manifest in art, architecture, politics, science, and literature. As far as the Renaissance being a cultural movement, the Renaissance encompassed innovative flowering of Latin and vernacular literature beginning with the 14th century resurgence in learning based on classical sources, which contemporaries at the time credit to the humanist author Petrarch, as well as the gradual but widespread educational reforms. In politics, the Renaissance contributed to the development of the customs and conventions of modern diplomacy. As far as science is concerned, science saw an increase in reliance and observation and inductive reasoning. And although the Renaissance saw revolutions in intellect, social, political upheavals, it is perhaps best known for its artistic developments, such as the development of linear perspective, which provided visual depth in art, and chiaroscuro, a shading technique that rendered more natural reality in paintings. Artistically, the Renaissance also gave way to contributions of the quote-unquote Renaissance man, which include the likes of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. Perhaps the biggest shift that the Renaissance experienced was in the theme of humanism. So how would we define humanism from a context of the Renaissance? So the Renaissance was driven by this term humanism. And humanism has three distinct yet debatable parts or meanings. So understand that even though we will go through all three of these, you still have historians that today debate which is the correct assumption of humanism. So first, the meaning of humanism in the context of the Italian Renaissance is a cultural and educational movement driven by philosophy that stressed the dignity of mankind, individualism, and secular values. A second meaning of humanism sees humanists as the champions of Catholic Christianity, which opposed the pagan teachings of Greek philosophers such as Aristotle and the scholasticism his writing nurtured. A third and final meaning of humanism sees it as a natural form of empirical-minded historical scholarship adopted to promote political liberty 
and a sense of civic responsibility. Regardless of which definition you attach to humanism, all three of those definitions have an attachment to the scholarly study of Greek and Latin classics, as well as the works of the ancient church fathers. Humanists advocated this studia humanitatis, or a liberal arts program that embraced grammar, rhetoric, poetry, history, politics, and moral philosophy. In his On Learning and Literature, the humanist Leonardo Bruni gives us an indication of which classes or subjects we would need to take in order to be considered a humanist. He says, quote, But we must not forget that true distinction is to be gained by a wide and varied range of such studies as conduce to the profitable enjoyment of life, in which, however, we must observe due proportion in the attention and time we devote to them. First among such studies, I place history, a subject which must not by any account be neglected by one who aspires to true cultivation. For it is our duty to understand the origins of our own history and its development and the achievements of peoples and of kings. The great orators of antiquity must by all means be included. Nowhere do we find the virtues more warmly extolled, the vices so fiercely decried. From them we may learn also how to express consolation, encouragement, dissuasion, or advice. I come now to poetry and the poets, for we cannot point to any great mind of the past for whom the poets had not a powerful attraction. To sum up what I have endeavored to set forth, that high standard of education to which I referred at the outset is only to be reached by one who has seen many things and read much. Poet, orator, historian, and the rest, all must be studied. Each must contribute a share. Our learning thus becomes full, ready, varied, and elegant, available for action or for discourse in all subjects. Who are the famous literary and artistic figures of the Italian Renaissance? And what do they have in common that might be described as the spirit of the Renaissance? Well, first and foremost, we're going to look at the father of humanism, Francesco Petrarca, or Petrarch. Born in the Tuscan city of Arezzo, Petrarch's work celebrated ancient Rome. His letters to the dead imagined personal correspondence with Cicero, Livy, Virgil, and Horace. His work, Africa, was an epic poem dedicated to the Roman general Scipio Africanus. His most famous work was a collection of thoughtful love sonnets dedicated to a distant, admired married woman named Laura. In Sonnet 227, we see Petrarch's distant admiration for Laura, but we also see the secular nature and connections many humanists found within the ancient Greek and Roman texts. Quote, Breeze, blowing that blonde curling hair, stirring it, and being softly stirred in turn, scattering that sweet gold about, then gathering it in a lovely knot of curls again. You linger around, bright eyes, whose love stings pierces me so, till I feel it and weep, and wander searching for my treasure, like a creature that often shies and kicks. Now I seem to find her, now I realize, she's far away, now I'm comforted, 
now despair, now longing for her, now truly seeing her. Happy air, remain here with your living rays in you, clear running stream, why can't I exchange my path for yours?" End quote. Petrarch emphasized critical textual studies, elitism, and a vast disapproval for the learning of scholastics. And these were all aspects that were later shared by many humanists. But in this quote specifically, we see how Petrarch is angered so by people who don't share in the same love of humanism and those people who are connected to the ancient learning of scholastics. He says, quote, O oh, inglorious age that scorns antiquity, its mother, to whom it owes every noble art, that dares to declare itself not only equal but superior to the glorious past. I say nothing of the vulgar, the dregs of mankind, whose sayings and opinions may raise a laugh but hardly merit a serious censor. But what can be said in the defense of men of education, who ought not to be ignorant of antiquity, and are yet plunged into the same darkness and delusion? You see, I cannot speak of these matters without the greatest irritation and indignation. There has arisen of late a set of dialecticians who are not only ignorant but demented. Like a black army of ants from some old rotten oak, they swarm forth from their hiding places, devastating the fields of sound learning. They condemn Plato and Aristotle, and laugh at Socrates and Pythagoras. And good God, under what silly and incompetent leaders these opinions are put forth? What shall we say of men who scorn Marcus Tilius Cicero, the bright son of eloquence? Of those who scoffed at Varro and Seneca, and are scandalized by what they choose to call the crude, unfinished style of Livy and Sullust? Such are the times, my friend, upon which we have fallen. Such is the period in which we live and are growing old. Such are the critics of today, as I so often have occasion to lament and complain. Men who are innocent of knowledge and virtue and yet harbor the most exalted opinion of themselves. Not content with losing the words of the ancients, they must attack their genius and their ashes. They rejoice in their ignorance, as if what they did not know were not worth knowing. They give full rein to their license and conceit and freely introduce among us new authors and outlandish teachings." End quote. Beyond Petrarch, all major literary humanist figures had one major goal in common, that of education. Humanists such as Pierpaolo Vergerio, Vittorio da Feltre, Quintilian, and Leonardo Bruni all refused to be slaves during their time. This attitude led them to become innovative educators, always searching for sources of information that would help them progress society. Their goal was wisdom eloquently spoken, both knowledge of good and the ability to inspire others to desire it. Humanists believed that learning was to become used and practical. Education elevated people. And even according to Petrarch, quote, it is better to will the good than to know the truth, end quote. Indeed, it was the humanist Leonardo Bruni that was the first that gave the title of Humanitas to the style of learning that resulted from such studies. Originally, Bruni's father wanted Leonardo to become a lawyer. However, fate and the Ottoman Turks would change Bruni's life direction. In 1397, the Byzantine Manuel Chrysoloris came to Florence. 
Upon hearing this, Bruni was torn. Could Bruni really miss this chance to study the ancient texts? In his history of his own times in Italy, Bruni shares the decision he made to study humanism, but also shows us his deep love and admiration for ancient Greek literature and language. Quote, At the coming of Christ Dolores, I was torn in mind, deeming it shameful to desert the law, and yet a crime to lose such a chance of studying Greek literature. And often with youthful impulse, I would say to myself, Thou, when it is permitted thee to gaze on Homer, Plato, and Demosthenes, and the other poets, philosophers, orators, of whom such glorious things are spread abroad, and speak with them, and be instructed in their admirable teaching, wilt thou desert and rob thyself? Will thou neglect this opportunity so divinely offered? For seven hundred years no one in Italy has possessed Greek letters, and yet we confess that all knowledge is derived from them. How great advantage to your knowledge, enhancement of your fame, increase of your pleasure will come from an understanding of this tongue. There are doctors of civil law everywhere, and the chance of learning will not fail thee. But if this one and only doctor of Greek letters disappears, no one can be found to teach thee. Overcome at length by these reasons, I gave myself to Christ Dolores, with such zeal to learn, that what through the wakeful day I gathered, I followed after in the night, even when asleep. End quote. Even though Leonardo Bruni did make up his mind to follow Manuel Christ Dolores and did not lose that chance to study the ancient Greek texts, when the Turks invaded and conquered Constantinople in 1453, Greek scholars poured into Florence. This led eventually to the creation of the Florentine Academy. Humanists now had their muse or inspiration to guide them in the study of classical Greek and Roman text and culture. As previously stated, humanists wanted to elevate society through their goal of education. Two humanists that sought to educate society on a personal level were Baltasare Castiglione and Christian de Paisan. Baltasare Castiglione's Book of the Courtier is a prime example of how humanism was not confined to the classroom. Originally meant to be a guide for young men who made up the court of Urbino, the ideal of the court member was one that integrated knowledge, ancient language, and history. However, the individual was also supposed to be athletic, with the ability to wrestle, to have military and musical skills as well. Additionally, the courtly gentleman was supposed to exemplify good manners and high moral character. Considered to be Europe's first feminist, Christian de Paisan was a poet and author for the French king Charles VI. Christian de Paisan is best known for her two works, The Book of the City of Ladies and The Treasure of the City of Ladies. In the first book, Christian houses famous women within a fortress city. This city is symbolically constructed with each famous woman as the bricks. One by one, as each brick is laid, each woman is added to Paisan's thesis about the importance of valuing women in society. In the second book, or The Treasure of the City of Ladies, it reads as a manual of education for women of all classes. De Paisan focuses on knowledge and education, offering advice on common concerns, and finally on the relationships between Renaissance men and Renaissance women.
the Renaissance nobleman and philosopher, Pico della Mirandola, created what is known as the Manifesto of the Renaissance, with his work, Oration on the Dignity of Man. By drawing from the study of Greek philosopher Plato, Pico depicts humans as the only creature in the world who possess the freedom to be whatever they choose. Our destiny is not predetermined. God has given us the liberty to shape and form our lives as we see it fit. This notion of power to shape our own lives became the key element in the emergence of modern thought. In this quote from Pico's Oration on the Dignity of Man, Pico thanks God for our ability to choose, through our own free will, what we want to make of ourselves. Quote, O supreme generosity of God the Father, O highest and most marvelous felicity of man, to him is granted to have whatever he chooses, to be whatever he wills. Beasts, as soon as they are born, bring with them from their mother's womb all that they will ever possess. Spiritual beings, he's talking about angels, either from the beginning or soon thereafter, become what they are to be forever and ever. On man, when he came into life, the father conferred the seeds of all kinds and the germs of every way of life. Whatever seed each man cultivates will grow to maturity and bear in him their own fruit. If they be vegetative, he will be like a plant. If sensitive, he will become brutish. If rational, he will grow into a heavenly being. If intellectual, he will be an angel and the son of God. And if, happy in the lot of no created thing, he withdraws into the center of his own unity, his spirit, made one with God, in the solitary darkness of God, whom is set above all things, shall surpass them all. End quote. Humanists also believed in the ideal of philosophical accuracy and historical truth. These high standards can be seen within the figure of Lorenzo Valla. Between 1439 and 1440, the Roman-born humanist and Catholic priest, is best known for his essay critiquing the document, The Donation of Constantine, a decree where the Roman Emperor Constantine transferred authority over the Western Roman Empire to the Pope. Valla proved in his essay, The False Donation of Constantine, that the document was in fact a forgery. Valla noted chronological inconsistencies. The decree used more contemporary terms like feth that was not used during the time of Constantine, and that the decree was not at all well written. Additionally, Valla argued that there was no way that Constantine could have legally gifted the Western Empire to the Pope. Yet despite undermining the power of the Pope and the trustworthiness of the papacy, Valla remained committed to the Catholic Church. According to Petrarch, the life of an intellectual was one of solitude. Intellectuals often rejected family life and action in the community. Increasingly, however, newer humanists believe that education should promote individual virtue and self-sacrificing public service. This became known as civic humanism, and in no place was civic humanism more pronounced than in Florence. Three chancellors of Florence, Coluccio Salutati, Leonardo Bruni, and Poggio Bracciolini, used their rhetorical skills learned from the ancient greats, such as the Roman statesman Marcus Tilius Cicero, to rally Florentines against their aggressors. We've had an opportunity to look at some of the literary figures of the Italian Renaissance, Let's now take a look at some of the artistic figures. What were some of their works, and how do they connect to the idea of humanism?
Regarded as one of Italy's greatest painters, Raphael's mastery of painting far outlasted his short life. Dead at the age of 37, Raphael's tenderness in his art attempted in many ways to create a clear ideal of beauty that surpassed any human standards. His numerous works displaying the Madonna speaks to this. At the Vatican Stanza della Signatura, Raphael's fresco, The School of Athens, commissioned by Pope Julius II, is a clear homage to humanism, the study of the classical world of Greece and Rome, as it depicts an imaginary gathering of ancient philosophers. Providing a world of balance, harmony, and order, Raphael depicts the greats such as Pythagoras, Ptolemy, Euclid, Archimedes, and others, displaying their works and talents. At the center, Plato and Aristotle, debating their schools of philosophy. Plato, pointing to the heavens, arguing a sense of timelessness, while Aristotle, gesturing to the here and now, is arguing for the physicality of life and the present realm. Driven by his immense desire to create, Michelangelo Buonarroti is yet another of the giants of the High Renaissance. His works were massive in scale and often based on Neoplatonism. In the beauty of the human body, we see Michelangelo's attempt to reflect divine godly beauty. Two works of art that display this are the ceiling and altar of the Sistine Chapel and the David. In part of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's The Creation of Man depicts the figure Adam awaiting God's divine spark. The altar of the chapel reveals the last judgment, souls being resurrected and some of man gaining paradise, while the damned are beaten down and carried across the river Styx to hell by the ferryman Charon. The David, commissioned by the government of Florence in 1501 and finished in 1504, stands robust, nude, and chiseled like that of a Greek hero or perhaps a Roman Caesar, exemplifying the Renaissance's connection with antiquity. David stands alone, tense, and ready for combat against Goliath. It today remains a symbol of strength and youthful beauty. In his Lives of the Artists, 1568, the Italian artist and author Giorgio Vasari introduced his chapter on Leonardo da Vinci with the following words, quote, In the normal course of events, many men and women are born with remarkable talents, but occasionally, and in a way that transcends nature, a single person is marvelously endowed by heaven with beauty, grace, and talent in such abundance that he leaves other men far behind. All his actions seem inspired, and indeed, everything he does clearly comes from God rather than from some human skill. Everyone acknowledged that this was true of Leonardo da Vinci, an artist of outstanding physical beauty who displayed infinite grace in everything that he did, and who cultivated his genius so brilliantly that all problems he studied he solved with ease. End quote. No one Renaissance individual represented the ideal of the Renaissance man, or polymath that exhibited unquestionable curiosity and innovative imagination, more than the well-rounded genius of Leonardo da Vinci. Paintings, frescoes, were only a small amount of the work created by da Vinci. He also worked in anatomy, civil engineering, chemistry, geology, geometry, hydrodynamics, mathematics, mechanical engineering optics, physics, pyrotechnics, and zoology. He created drafts of the first flying machine, helicopter, and tank. According to art historian Helen Gardner, the scope and depth of his interests were without precedence in recorded history, and his, quote, mind and personality seemed to us superhuman, while the man himself mysterious and remote, end quote. In his work entitled Vitruvian Man, we see a blend of art and math. Da Vinci displays the proportions of the human form. Here, da Vinci attempts to relate the workings of the human body as a representative microcosm of the universe. What do all these figures have in common that could be described as the, quote, spirit of the Renaissance, end quote? 
Well, each of these individuals share a common thirst for personal growth via education. The spirit of individualism promoted the genius of the human being. The abilities of man were considered limitless. Moreover, humanist education was meant not only for individual progress, but also be used for the progress of humanity in general. Before we move completely away from the Italian Renaissance and focus more on the Northern Renaissance, the Renaissance of Northern Europe, we're going to take a moment to look at some similarities and differences based on three major fields or realms of study. Usually when you're looking at the Renaissance, you're thinking of three major terms, humanism, individualism, and secularism. So let's look at the first word, secularism. Secularism usually means more worldly, less religious. You have more of a connection with the here and now. You have less of a connection with the realm of God, the spiritual world. You are living on earth and enjoying uh, your time on earth. You love your possessions. You love your wealth. You're less interested on perhaps what's happening in the afterlife. Well, for secularism, if we're splitting this between the Italian and Northern Renaissance, uh, the Italian Renaissance is much more secular and less religious. But important to note, it is more secular and less religious. So it would be incorrect for us to say that the Italian Renaissance was solely secular and irreligious. That's not correct. Right? We still have Italian masters uh, in, in literary and in artistic figures that are promoting religious ideas. But it seems to be that the sway of social adherence to secularism is much more pronounced in the Italian Renaissance than it is in the Northern Renaissance. So for the Italian, more secular, less religious. For the Northern Renaissance, that flips. So if you're looking at perhaps percentages, you want to say 70-30. For the Italian Renaissance, it's 70% secular, 30% less religious, if that kind of gives you a clue, to, a tangible clue to hold on to. Flip that number for the Northern Renaissance. The Northern Renaissance becomes maybe 70% more religious. There's more of a focus on what is called the Christian humanism. That's not to say that humanism in the Greco-Roman world is not pronounced, but it's more of a direction towards the Bible in the North. What does the Bible tell us about human connections, the ideals of, of humanism as a study? There's much more of a brotherly relation and, uh, relationship and religious connection in the North than there is in the Italian Renaissance. But that's also not to say that the Northern Renaissance is completely non-secular. So when we're looking at the North, think 70% religious, 30% secular, that religion is mostly based on the concept of Christian humanism. And we'll talk a little bit about a gentleman in particular known as Erasmus, who was probably the most defined Christian humanist in the North. Another similarity in that, um, that view here uh, between Italian and Northern, uh, something that would be perhaps in the middle of a Venn diagram would be the mastery of art. It would be incorrect for us or anybody at that point in, in time to view the difference in art between the Northern Renaissance artists and the Italian Renaissance artists and pass judgment on which one is nicer, more beautiful, better, stronger. Uh, art and the love of art is kind of in the eye of the beholder here. So how you want to look at da Vinci and how da Vinci differs from the Van Eck brothers, it's up for you to decide. So one major similarity here in the North and the Italian Renaissance is the mastery of art, the importance of art, the mastery of art. Looking at the next one for humanism. Another ideal of humanism that we've already talked about here. Humanism is important in both the Northern and the Italian Renaissance. They both have connections with Greece and Rome, but if you're looking at this in a differing, how does the North differ from the Italian? The influence is much more of Christian humanism in the North, whereas you're not finding really 
a Christian humanist approach in that of the Italian Renaissance. Their humanist approach is more directed towards the ancient Greek and Roman uh, writings of antiquity. The last ism, that of individualism. Individualism is important in the Italian Renaissance, and it is important It is important in the Northern Renaissance. So that would have another central idea, let's say, in this Venn diagram, that individualism, the idea of the individual, the individual showing off their talent, their spark, their drive in society, what differs them from other people. They're kind of showing off their abilities, God-given or otherwise. Uh, that is both important and a major theme in the Italian Renaissance as much as it is in the North. Let's take a moment to move away from the Italian Renaissance and focus much more on the North. Perhaps the most important invention that helped to propel the Northern Renaissance, as well as future religious reforms, was the printing press. Before the Renaissance, literacy was mostly a government skill for bureaucrats to help them successfully administer a state. By the time the Renaissance arrived, however, the expansion of universities and schools allowed for more widespread literacy amongst lay people. However, bookmaking was an expensive and tedious task, and that often meant that supply of literature could not meet the open demand. Enter Johann Gutenberg. His invention of the printing press with movable type allowed books to be rapidly made. The books created were intended for lay readers and scholars alike. They covered profound topics such as religion, as well as child-rearing and farming. Other examples included calendars and almanacs. The results of the printing press were profits for the printers, increase in propaganda and indoctrination for the kings, and pamphlets and indulgences for the church. But the most important result of the printing press was that the widespread availability of books allowed that all could read to promote self-thought. This eventually led to lay people challenging authority, such as in the up-and-coming religious reformations of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Oryx Zwingli in the 1500s. If the Northern Renaissance had a much more pronounced Christian humanist perspective, then perhaps no one individual embodied the Northern Renaissance more than the famous Northern humanist Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. But in what way was Erasmus the embodiment of the Northern Renaissance? As an educational and religious reformer, Erasmus aspired to unite the classical ideals of humanity and civic virtue with the Christian ideals of love and piety. Erasmus sought to reform individuals and society through early disciplined study of the classical text and the Bible. Erasmus's life of imitating that of Christ became a stark contrast to that lived by the church officials, most notably the Pope. As an idealist, Erasmus sought to promote the essence of Christianity. He made ancient Christian sources available in their original versions, hoping that Christians would rediscover the moral and religious health the New Testament promises. He both edited the works of the church fathers and produced Greek and Latin editions of the New Testament. Not everyone enjoyed it, Erasmus's labor. Secular church officials were displeased with his innovations to the Vulgate and his popular anti-clerical writings. At one point in the 1500s, Erasmus's works were officially forbidden by the church. The Italian Renaissance eventually spread to locations of Northern Europe and the West, most notably Spain, France, Germany, and England. But let's take a look on how the Northern Renaissance affected culture in these areas. For example, in Germany. Rudolf Arigola is known as the father of German humanism, and he spent 10 years in Italy and eventually introduced Italian learning to Germany upon his return. The Hessian-born Ulrich von Hutten mixed German nationalism and humanism and reform-minded Lutheranism. He was a great admirer of Erasmus 
and even attacked the selling of indulgences. As for England, Italian learning came to England by way of English scholars, merchants, and visiting Italian clerics. Sir Thomas More is England's best-known humanist. In his 1516 book Utopia, Moore greatly criticized his intolerant and materialistic contemporary society. In the book, Moore dreams of a utopia, or a perfect society, but a nowhere, according to the direct Greek translation. Moore imagined a society based on reason and brotherhood, a place where everyone was required to earn their bread through their own work. Moore's critiques on society would ultimately lead to his downfall. Moore rejected Henry VIII's act of supremacy in 1534, which made King Henry the head of the English church. Moore's inability to accept Henry's act eventually led to Moore's arrest and his execution in 1535. How did the Northern Renaissance affect culture in France? While English humanism arrived from Italy by way of trade and education, French humanism arrived by way of France's invasions of Italy in the 1500s, which resulted in both educational and religious reforms. Guillaume Baudet and Lefebvre d'Etapes were leaders of the French movement. Bishop Guillaume Brinosset and the future Queen of Navarre, Marguerite d'Angolomé, both contributed spiritual writings that would greatly influence the future reformer, John Calvin. While the Northern Renaissance pushed German, English, and French humanism in the direction of Protestant reforms, the Northern Renaissance for Spain, however, pushed Spanish humanism in the direction of the Catholic Church. Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros was the main Spanish humanist. His Composentian Polygot Bible, which took 15 years to complete, placed Greek, Latin, and Hebrew translations in uniform columns. And most importantly, he was Queen Isabella's Grand Inquisitor, which allowed him to enforce strict religious beliefs. This strictness, coupled with the religious repression under King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, allowed Spain to remain Catholic during the years of the Reformation. Drawing this podcast to a close, what were perhaps some of the major effects of the Renaissance? Well, looking forward, looking at the time period, and eventually looking forward, number one, the printing press. Uh, the printing press allowed for the access of information. It allowed others to print and share their opinions and eventually led to the challenge of authority, most notably, of course, religious authority. The Reformation is also a major part of the effects of the Renaissance. Uh, it splits Europe into different sects of Christianity, and this will lead to the Catholic and eventually the Counter-Reformations, as well as the various wars of religion, including the very awful and disastrous Thirty Years' War. And not to mention, of course, the scientific revolution. The new practice of humanism and learning gave way to challenge of religious authority. It led to the likes of Copernicus and Galileo, and eventually to Newton. In ending our review of the Renaissance, the Renaissance or the social and cultural rebirth that took place between 1400 to 1600 based itself on the study of humanities or the rediscovery of the ancient texts and admiration of Greek and Roman life. Literary humanists such as Patriarch, Bruni, Paisan, De La Mirandola all believed that learning was to be used and practical and that education elevated people to a higher standard. Artists such as Michelangelo and da Vinci provided the visual spectacle of art, such as the Sistine Chapel and Vitruvian Man. These works of art displayed individualism and the genius of what man was capable of creating. Italian humanism eventually spread to northern parts of Europe. However, the northern Renaissance appeared in part different from its Italian version. Although both displayed the individual genius of writers and artists, the Italian Renaissance was increasingly secular 
while the North was more religious. The printing press helped facilitate the Renaissance in the North. Nations also transformed by the arrival of the Italian Renaissance. In places like Germany, France, and England, humanists from those lands often turned their arguments in favor of social justice and critiques of powerful entities, most notably the church. All of these lands would have individuals that would inspire future leaders of the Reformation, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin. Spain, however, remained committed to their Catholic faith and did not fall in line with what other nations saw entrenching themselves in the future Reformation. <laughs>